Hello, welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast where we share stories, insights and strategies that go beyond some of the numbers we encounter in our work life. I'm Susan Lee-Trivon. I work with organisations who put people first. I've lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't. People who bring their full selves to work and people who won't. And together with my guests, we place a lens on and focus in on the people side of work life. Because we know that it is people who do the work, not numbers. And if we are treated well, we will perform well and might even generate better numbers. Today, I am delighted to welcome Julian Roy to Life Beyond the Numbers. Julian, you're so welcome. Oh, thank you, Susan. It's lovely to be here and thanks for having me. It's fantastic. Now, I met Julian a couple of months ago and I was immediately intrigued because he talked about some research that he'd been doing on the challenges that were faced by sales leaders in particular during the pandemic. And this was part of your MBA course, right, Julian? Yes, correct, Susan. So yeah, it was a two-year blended course that I was doing, and it covered essentially aspects of leaderships. There was economics, organizational behavior. And at the end of it, it was left up to us in terms of what area we write our dissertation on. And because I've always been uh, a bit of a people's person, you know, I do like kind of that <laughs> interaction. So it's no surprise the module that I chose was, was organizational behavior, specifically on leadership styles and perspectives and the whole kind of dynamics behind leadership management. And yeah, it's something I'm genuinely interested in. So, yeah, it was quite a natural thing for me to kind of head down that route. Fantastic. Yeah. And so, and the reason then that you you further, I suppose, focused in on sales leaders mm-hmm. in particular, Julian, mm-hmm. was there a particular reason for that? Yes, indeed there was, Susan. It's essentially, it's about kind of looking at areas where there perhaps is a lack of information, a lack of research. And interestingly, I mean, there was lots and lots of things on other industries but nothing specifically for sales and I always find it fascinating particularly with sales because you can go and get a marketing degree you can go and get a advertising HR degree but you can't actually go out and get a degree in sales so that's one of the things that always stuck out to me so yeah I thought you know what let's focus on that area but having said that I mean that interestingly out of the research Susan it, it was apparent that it can be applied to any sector hopefully some of that will come out today in terms of the common themes that came out throughout the research well i'm delighted to hear that as well because i always think well people are just people wherever Mm. you go so yes of course certain personalities might gravitate more towards sales or finance or whatever it might be but at the end of the day lessons can be learned and shared across industries so that's definitely yeah definitely yeah 100% yeah and I think it's an interesting point you brought up there Susan because one of the things that I did did learn throughout the research as as well was cross-collaboration amongst uh, different departments 
And that was one of the things that actually came out really, really strong, whereas operations might be seen as a separate part of sales and marketing. What we found in the research is that there was that kind of almost real collaboration, communication in between all of those departments. So, yeah. Okay, cool. Well, today we're going to dive in, I hope, into some of the things that you uncovered, learned, yeah. were surprised by, mm-hmm. already knew but had confirmed, mm-hmm. and various things we do when we research. Because mm-hmm. I suppose one of the things I know for myself from having done a dissertation a few years ago, mm-hmm. you also have to have a beginner's mind and a bit of objectivity when you yeah. start the research. Of course, you start with a question. Yes. You don't really know where it's going to take you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that was the fascinating part of the whole journey, Susan. It, it was a little bit like having a flashlight going through a dark forest and just kind of finding your way out. But where do you start from? But there has to be a starting point. As the journey progressed, the pathway became clear. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm overall really really happy with the with the overall research and and the outcome of of that and so as well when you were doing this research presumably you did some desk-based research on Mm -hmm. books or not books but I suppose but publications and seeing what other companies were doing and so on Mm -hmm. but also you spoke to people you actually interviewed people indeed Susan yeah so the research was based on eight interviews so all of those had to be transcribed, which I wouldn't want to do again. <laughs> you think uh, you imagine kind of an hour and a half interview and you've got to transcribe every single word of those. But luckily, I found some software to do that in terms of actually finding themes. But yeah, absolutely fascinating. It was from that that we're able to extract certain themes. You know, there were certain things that repeating themselves over and over. And I think that's kind of what we really what I really based it on was that, you know, what what is a common thread running through everything? So what yeah. was a common thread running through everything? Do you know what? I can probably summarize it in one word, Susan. Empathy. Yeah. Really? Empathy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Even managers before who perhaps didn't have that close interaction were more of a sort of command and control type manager were forced into becoming more empathetic. And the only way we become empathetic is by building trust and building authentic relationships. And I think that's one of the things that was lacking before in some companies, obviously not for all. But I think the pandemic really forced that whole empathy and uh, communication as well was was a massive thing in terms of letting people know what's going on. New, emergent, things that were unpredictable. Obviously, the government was making new announcements almost every other day. So there was a real uncertainty, wasn't there, as to exactly what's going on. So yeah, communication was was key as well. But if if, if I had to summarize it in 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 one word without question, it was yeah, empathy and understanding. And yeah, of course that encompasses building relationships as well. I suppose if we take a step back mm-hmm. almost to it's March 2020 and suddenly mm-hmm. everybody has to start working at home. And it was a big shock and the people that you spoke with had they ever done remote management before some of them had i mean not everybody but i think interestingly with sales teams it was perceived that they can't work from home okay because they kind of need the buzz of the office they've got a uh, by nature i think there's a little bit of a stereotype about 
salespeople. They like to have a lot of fun. There's quite a lot of banter. And I've been in situations as well when I've been managed and when I've been a manager. Generally speaking, they don't like people working from home because they think they're just going to mess around. They're not going to get anything done. But I think an interesting thing that came out of the research was that, interestingly, people actually worked more. They did longer hours. You know, they put more commitment into it. And I think the argument behind that was, and again, this was a really interesting thing that came out of the research, is yes, there was a sense of camaraderie and everybody is pitching in and everybody is doing roles probably that they wouldn't normally do. For example, I mean, I was managing at the time, but because of the situation, I myself got on the phone and became a salesperson as well. You did what you had to do to keep the business afloat. So everybody was working a lot longer hours. But what, what it transpired from the research as well, a lot of those people were doing that extra hours through fear, you know, because at this time, we didn't even know what the word furlough was. I mean, did, did, did you know? Never heard it before. Never, Never heard of it. Never no. heard of furlough. But then obviously this new word was floating around furlough. A lot of insecurity at the time, wasn't there, Susan? Hell of a lot of insecurity. I mean, everybody was fearing for their jobs, for their future, obviously people with family to support. So, yeah, interestingly, a lot of the research was pointing towards fear, you know, that that extra work was going on so that they can secure their jobs. They can be perceived that they're doing that extra work. They're worth keeping. Yeah. So tied around Mm self-worth as well, Julian, because there's an element of if you were secure in the job and the business is still doing okay, well, then I should be fine if I keep working the way I've always worked. But I guess people have more involved in, in the fear it brings up in other insecurities. It does. Absolutely. And I think it goes back to a lot of well selling principle in terms of people either buy out of fear or greed. And I think, you know, it could be the whole fear factor when it came to that. Yeah, absolutely. It can be related to that. Wow. So I I hadn't heard that. People buy either out of fear or out of greed. Yeah, it's an interesting one. And it falls down to with sales. It relates to a principle of we tend to buy from emotion, but then the logic kicks in after. And I think the way to look at that is we want to get that holiday. We want to get the car or the handbag, the shoes, whatever it is. We had a budget, but bang goes the budget. We bought it anyway. And we'll look at our bank statement later. I think I've gone over budget. So it's always going to be that emotion. And then the logic tends to kick in after. Yeah, the buyer's remorse. The buyer's remorse, exactly. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So maybe if we take some of the questions that you Mm -hmm. posed in the research and talk Mm -hmm. around some of the findings, would that be, yeah, yeah, that would be good because emotion is something I picked up a couple of times actually in the questions you posed. Yes. And and one of them was like, how did you manage your own emotions and well-being? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So like if you're, you know, you're talking about leaders here. So they obviously had people they were managing but they yeah. were also reporting into somebody else. So they're probably yes. in the middle being quite squeezed mm-hmm. above mm-hmm. and be- below. Mm-hmm. And I'd say probably feeling immense responsibility. I think it's a really good way of looking at it, actually, because it was almost like they were compressed, you know, and that was a lot of the discussion came about. But a really interesting thing that came out 
Susan, in that, in terms of that question, was that, oh, I'm, I, I didn't, I never really gave it much thought, you know, until you've actually asked me. And I think that was one of the things that people were just running on adrenaline, were running on, you know, this such uncertainty, what's going on, but they were taking care of their staff. There was a lot of calls going in. There was probably more calls than most. There was a lot of social activities on online. You know, they would do quizzes. Just, <laughs> I don't think nobody ever did so many quizzes in their lives. They were, we're all kind of general knowledge experts, I think, after, after COVID. But uh, yeah, so managers were making that extra effort, for example, to, to have those social interactions, to do the check-in calls, to uh, have the Friday drinks online, you know, all that great stuff, which all the companies were doing. But it, it was interesting, particularly for middle management and senior management. Nobody was really looking out for them because obviously that was a case that they just had to crack on. So it was an interesting question. And a lot of it was like, came a bit of a shock. Right, I'm not... It, I didn't really think about it. <laughs> so, yeah, it was a, a good question for reflection, I think. And so when exactly did you do these interviews as well, Julian? How long into the pandemic or, you know, what time of the year was it when you'd questioned people? So when did the, so the pandemic hit in March, wasn't yeah. it, of 20? So this was a year after. It was when we were just coming out of it. We were back in the office then, but it was still a little bit not, fully there so the government was encouraging us to get back and we weren't quite within normality so at that time yeah. the people you were speaking to hadn't really considered their own stress and well-being yeah and no one had been looking out for them either I would say I wouldn't say in every scenario but I, I would say a lot of it was obviously there was a, a an overall kind of mental well-being across the board really but I think Obviously, managers, they're almost in that position of trust in there in terms of they're actually steering the boat, aren't they? So if anything happens to them, who's going to steer the boat? So from, from that perspective, it was a case of, I think, putting on a brave face. But yeah, I heard some really difficult stories, some really, really difficult stories in there in terms of coping with everything and putting on this brave face. But they also didn't want to take it back to family members as well. So yeah. It was a real testing time, I would say, for, for middle management and, and, of course, you know, senior management, corporate management. And I think what you're saying there about not wanting mm. to bring it to family members as mm. well, that must have been extra challenging when you're only at home. Yeah. You didn't have an outlet to even walk home mm -hmm. after work or get the bus or commute. So yeah. you actually go down the stairs or up the stairs, wherever, or change rooms and yeah. you kind of have to change who you are yeah I mean that was an interesting thing as well Susan because out of the research came as well is the way a lot of managers dealt with that is almost having like a regimented structure whereas before it was a little bit like see where the day goes I mean a lot was kind of literally regimented this 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 just to keep them sane yeah, yeah. I suppose boundaries in a way Boundaries, yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Definitely. But almost without realising that they, so they were protecting themselves, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but in a way that they had to learn on the job. Yeah, it, it definitely was that, learning on the job. But I think switching off was a real kind of 
difficult thing. A lot of managers were going way beyond five o'clock. In fact, through all of the research, nobody switched off at five o'clock. It was a, a, a lot later and that, of course, was the whole work-life balance was completely off then. But I think, interestingly, as a result of all of that, a lot of managers are now really seeing the importance of that and making sure that they have that balance now. They have it and their teams. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And then, I mean, you've talked about the quizzes and things like that, but that's not enough to motivate Mm -hmm. or incentivize people or Mm -hmm. perhaps keep that sense of belonging Mm -hmm. that you have when you're in an office with others. Mm -hmm. So what did you find there? How did people keep that sense of belonging alive Mm. that that felt sense yeah it's an interesting question Susan because I think again a really interesting dynamic that came out of it was the whole subject of culture and how culture was affected because obviously culture I mean comes from the the word cult and it's about community isn't it and it's really difficult to have a community if you're at the other end of a computer Community is all about interactions. It's about being with people. It's about having the sporadic conversations by the coffee machine or the water machine is where some of the greatest ideas come up and that collaboration. So culture was affected from that perspective. And obviously companies tried their best to do what they could. How that was managed, that came more from a corporate level in terms of regular company updates. So everybody would get on a call and everybody would understand what's going on there'd be an open forum in terms of questions. So from that perspective, it was, yeah, everything was essentially transferred to a digital platform. But again, it boils down to communication was was key to kind of keep that going. And were they useful? You know, did the managers think that that was a good use of time or that that it was effective? Oh yeah, definitely, 100%. I mean, and it boils down to communication with everybody because I think it's going back to the uncertain time, Susan, where a lot of people were put on furlough and what stemmed from the research was a lot of those people who were put on furlough were quite neglected across the board and in hindsight going back if it happened again they would have liked to involve those people more because a lot of those people were brought back but it was almost like they were put on the sideline and say look you're on furlough we don't know what's going on we'll get back in touch with you when we know whereas they should have been actively still part of the company. And that's kind of what a lot of the research said, that although the people who were in the business were really kept in touch with and there was that clear communication stream, not so much with the guys who were on furlough. And I can't imagine what that would have been like myself, Mm -hmm. Julian. You know, Mm -hmm. if you were cast aside for Mm -hmm. a couple of months at a time, just wondering, I mean, that makes it harder even because you're imagining all sorts of scenarios. Yeah. It, 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 it is. I think for a lot of people, the whole furlough thing before it was a bit of a novelty, wasn't it? Oh, you know, got a couple of weeks off work, we're going to get paid. And But I think as time progressed, obviously the seriousness of the situation yeah, was unraveling. It was apparent that a lot of people were, were losing their jobs. And again, it, it's one of the things that not only from my research, but I think from a lot of research that, that came out was a lot of businesses use that time to get rid of deadwood or people that weren't producing. And yeah, so obviously from that perspective, yeah, it was used in not in such a good way 
to kind of get rid of people. And I tell you, we see the impact of that now in the mm-hmm. travel industry, certainly. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've traveled anywhere recently, <laughs> Julian, but I was on a flight from Glasgow to Birmingham. Yeah. Took off 45 minutes late because mm-hmm. of staff shortages. Mm-hmm. But then when we landed in Birmingham, mm-hmm. we landed at quarter past nine at night and we got off the plane at five past eleven. Mm-hmm. because there was nobody to escort us off the plane <sighs> nightmare and i think it's because they let staff go and like you're just saying they mm-hmm. kind of thought they could do without them or whatever mm-hmm. but what was really interesting as well was the pilot came out and addressed us mm-hmm. from the front of the plane like stood at the front of the plane and said morale is really low in this mm-hmm. airport Mm-hmm, there are mm-hmm. staff shortages everybody's having to do a mm-hmm. bit extra work mm-hmm. the police are being called because there are unruly passengers that's damaging morale even more mm-hmm. and there was something really powerful about connecting with our humanity Mm-mm-mm. as passengers yeah. because we kind of forgot oh god i'm going to miss my train or my parking's going to be extra whatever and mm-hmm. thought about actually Mm-hmm. these are real people who are keeping us safe yeah and yeah, we have yeah. to give them a bit of leeway definitely definitely I think it's a it's a fascinating point actually because it's it all boils down to um, human connection interaction community as a species I think one of the things that we're really lacking now is that community living and if we go back centuries that's what it was all about wasn't it it was about what, what, what's the saying it takes a, a whole village to raise a child and now I think obviously because of digital evolution and everything else that's going on absolutely the world has progressed but I think we're living in a society now where it's a demand we want it now this second and if something doesn't go right we don't accept it. And I think this is one of the consequences of obviously the, the progression of humanity. Yeah, that's a very interesting mm. tension mm. to hold. And yeah. if you're at the wrong end of that, mm-hmm. then you're getting shouted at and we don't yeah. see each other as people. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's interesting you use that, the, the example of that holiday, for example. So uh, again, research shows that if we ask a question and we, we, we ask the reason why we're asking it, we're much more likely to get a response. Whereas if we just ask somebody a question, it could be, a, why, why are you asking me that question? I think that the fact that the pilot did take the time out and made that human connection, it was, ah, okay, now, now this makes sense. So yeah, really interesting. It is, isn't it? And I think a lot of us shy away from that situation where we think it might be difficult for us. Mm-hmm. to announce something like that and we'll get I don't know tomatoes thrown at us or something yeah when yeah. actually yeah. it really just calms down the collective mm-hmm. nervous system of the passengers and yeah. makes a difference it does it does it's all about those connections isn't it it's all about it is it, people not knowing that causes frustration so as long as people know then that almost kind of takes that frustration away And even that, because that's a really interesting point, actually, and we'll move on from the pilot in a minute, but (laughs) he did come on to us a couple of times saying, I don't have an update for you. I'm really sorry. I don't know what's going on. And even hearing that, you're like, okay, he doesn't know. So it's okay if I don't know. Yeah, really interesting point, because again, that reflects a lot of the research which was done as well. And whereas it started off with, I know everything. 
I think towards the, you know, in the, in the midst of the pandemic, it was okay to say, look, I don't know, I'm struggling. I don't know the answers, you know, and we weren't expected to know all the answers. Which no one does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like there is not a person out there that knows everything about everything. Yeah, absolutely. Susan, I think one of the really interesting things that came out and which we're kind of already covered is how vulnerable we are as human beings. We all like to put on a a brave face, a strong kind of Superman, Superwoman, but we're so vulnerable. All of us as human beings are very, very fragile. Do you think we recognise that, Julian? I think we did. Yeah, I think the conversations, I mean, I experienced it. I mean, myself suffered really Mr. Positive, be positive, obviously went through that journey of a little bit of despair at some time. And I was questioning myself in terms of, look, this isn't me. But again, it helped for me to learn about myself as well, that it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to be scared. It's okay because it's who we are as human beings, isn't it? It's human. It's human. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And do you think that that was something new for you to discover yeah it was definitely I think I myself discovered a a completely new part to myself I mean I was lucky enough to have a really supportive wife and otherwise I don't know how I would have got through it in all honesty and I think it's one of the interesting things Susan that came out of the whole pandemic in terms of what are the things that are important to us is it having the big house the car the high-flying job. No, what did it all boil down to? Relationships, family, friends, particularly when we couldn't see anybody. The things that we took for granted, obviously that's what brought it to the forefront. And then we started to understand what is most important to us. Yeah, what matters most. What matters most, yeah. And interestingly, in the capacity as a sales trainer, one of the questions I ask a lot of the people I train is what drives you, what motivates you. Quite often you get, it's money, it's commission. But interestingly, when you delve down what they want to do with the money, it always boils down to loved ones. It always does. But I think it's almost a default button. Why are you doing it? Oh, I want to earn the money. I want to be rich. But then if you delve deeper, there's always a deeper fundamental reason as to what is driving us, what's motivating us. And is that a surprise for people when you delved deeper? Yes, it is. Absolutely. It, it's a massive surprise. It really is a massive surprise for people because they think, oh, yeah, I've never thought about it from, from that perspective. Yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because in one way, you think we would all know mm-hmm. what gets us out of bed in the morning, like why mm-hmm. we bother putting up with stuff, why we go to work. But mm-hmm. it's not a question we're asked. It's not a question we're asked. Yeah. Exactly. And I think it's one of those questions which really prompts us to think about, oh, actually, what is my driver? And it falls down to, I think Simon Sinek has done a lot of research on the why. You know, it's not what we do. It, it, it's why we're doing the things we're doing, because we all know what we do. Obviously, from your perspective, you're a, a leadership trainer. From my perspective, I'm a sales trainer. And people are very quick to say what their job role is. But if you ask them the why it's always a little bit difficult it's yeah it challenges people so can I ask Mm -hmm. you why you do Mm -hmm. what you do yeah I I would say for me uh, myself Susan I think around about 10 years ago I think there was a crossroads in terms of do I go into leadership management which I was doing or do I concentrate 
on the training, learning, development side of things. And for me, it was what kind of gave me the buzz was helping people to kind of come out of a almost like a, a doubting mindset, a negative mindset that they can't do the job, but equipping them with the right tools, equipping them and enabling them to be the best that they possibly can. And it was kind of at those nights out when they probably had one too many and you get the hug and say, Julian, I want to thank you. You changed my life. You really helped me with that. I mean, that for me is my almost my goosebump moments. I'm, I'm in one of those privileged positions, I think, Susan, where I'm doing a job which I absolutely love and I get up every morning looking forward to it. So, yeah, and I think from that perspective, I've always said the moment anybody wakes up and thinks, oh, do you know what? I don't really want to go in today and I'm not really enjoying this. Then do something you enjoy, you know? Easier said than done. Easier said than done. True. And I know we've had this conversation before. Yeah, I think that's a debate in itself, isn't it, Susan, in terms of following, following your dream, following your passion. But it's, it, it, it's really interesting. I mean, you, I speak to a lot of people who absolutely hate their jobs, but are purely staying in there because of the security. And, and it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because you've got a family to support. You've got to pay the mortgage. You've got to pay bills. So I think it's, again, perhaps another podcast on that topic in terms of, you know, what, what we can do. Yeah. And at times it is the law of diminishing returns, because mm-hmm. even though, yes, you might be affording your mortgage and all of that stuff, mm-hmm. what's it doing to your soul? Yes. And what's the mm-hmm. price you're paying for your mm-hmm. health? Mm-hmm. And back to almost where we started with some of the leaders you spoke to, how they had put in boundaries, but maybe hadn't thought about their own well-being. Yeah. And that does have a knock-on impact. You're mm-hmm. borrowing from the future yeah. if you're not taking care of the present. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I'd agree with that. And I think again, what stemmed from that as well, Susan, was the almost like the holistic richness. So when we talk about, for example, wealth, I think we always think in monetary terms. But again, I think wealth, particularly during this whole time is is spiritual wealth it's emotional wealth it's physical wealth it's financial wealth and i think it's all of these come together which gives us overall wealth i've got this huge smile on my face you can't (laughs) see me but i've got a huge smile on my face julian can (laughs) see me because it is that life beyond (laughs) the numbers there is more to life than numbers absolutely absolutely yeah yeah, and that ties in nicely, <laughs> ties in really nicely. <laughs> it really does, hence the big smile. Mm-hmm. But what about the ability of organisations then to adapt and evolve? Where do they go from here? Again, a really good question, because I think a lot of the research which came about, and one of the research questions was based around lessons learned. And one of the key things that came out of it is, Businesses, organizations almost have a blueprint now. They've got something in place whereby if something did happen again, they would be prepared. Obviously, first time it's happened, we didn't know what to do. Things like, for example, tech, getting people to work from home was in a lot of cases a logistical nightmare. But if anything did happen again, all of that infrastructure is in place now. So yeah, that's one of the key things that came about was that, yeah, having that infrastructure in place now i suppose the big question you know you look at elon musk who mm-hmm. ordered everybody back into the office otherwise mm-hmm. they're not really working mm-hmm. you know there's others who are like never having an office again 
because mm-hmm. everybody can work from wherever they want, wherever they want, whenever they want. Mm-hmm. Is, these are extremes. Is there a happy medium to be found? Is it going to take time? What's the future look like, Julian? The happy medium is definitely the hybrid model. It's kind of two, three days at home, two in the office. And I think a lot of companies, of course, are given their people that flexibility. But I think it's a personal choice, really. So for myself personally, I prefer being in the office. I like that interaction. I think particularly as a sales trainer, because you can see people in the white of the eyes, you can read their emotions, their feelings. It becomes a little bit more difficult when you've got a group of 20 on Teams or Zoom to kind of manage that whole process. But uh, in answer to your question, I think the work from home model, that hybrid model is here to stay. But um, from a personal perspective, I hope we don't lose the office, you know, because I think Again, it's going back, Susan, to what we're talking about in terms of those off-the-cuff, sporadic meetings which we're having, which can really ignite great innovation. And I think that's one of the things that's lacking, but but also interaction, also building those relationships, you know, going for a drink with your with your workmates after work, these little things which help build those relationships within the office. God, completely agree with all of that. And some of it is probably my own bias from having grown up in the office environment. But mm-hmm. I wonder if you're brand new to work mm-hmm. and you've started your first employment mm-hmm. during the mm-hmm. pandemic mm-hmm. and never had an office environment, mm-hmm. would you feel differently? It's a really interesting question, actually. And I think, again, the whole subject can be done on this because I don't think there's been much research <laughs> done on that. So it's a really good point. But again, from personal experience, working with people who are in that situation, you're right, Susan, they don't know any different. They've never really had that. They've come straight out of school, college, whatever it is, and it's their first job. And they're sat at home behind a computer Obviously, there's the Teams meetings, all of that is going on. But uh, I think there's a real lacking of, uh, of that. I think they're missing out. I really do. The long and short of it is that even though a lot of them I speak to love it, and even as a sales trainer, I think particular for the younger people, I, w- I wanted to make sure I was a source there as well as the managers, as well as everybody else that I'm somebody to reach out to as well. But the feedback I got was, yeah, they really love it. You know, they love the flexibility. They can work from home. But yeah, it's like you say, they don't know any different, do they? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 And it's it's hard to convince people there's another way. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because when we were probably growing up, Susan, there was smoking everywhere, you know, in bars, pubs, airports, you know. But obviously the generation now is that that world is completely alien, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, but also we didn't have phones or smartphones or computers, you know? Yes, absolutely. So we've also like been a real, you know, I think the X generation, which is our Mm -hmm. generation, is Mm -hmm. is often the one that's forgotten about, I think. Mm -hmm. Yet I think Mm -hmm. we're the one that straddles all Mm -hmm. of these worlds really, really well because we kind of can do any of it. We're quite adaptable. That's what I believe. Definitely, definitely, yeah. So I suppose I'd love to know, was there something that blew your mind a little bit or something that really puzzled you and think you need to do more research on or both? Yeah, I would say both, really. I I would say that throughout all of this, it was a a lot of things that came out of it. One of the things that you've mentioned, for example, people's first experience of working from home. I think the fact that a lot of the world is turning into the work from home environment and 
I think research is the implications of that, the long-term implications of that in terms of society as a whole, you know, because it's going back to what I was saying about community living. And part of that is that the whole cultural aspect of, of being in the work environment. So uh, yeah, I think that would probably be the next thing for me is in terms of cultural dynamics and how that has been implicated by the whole pandemic and the dynamics which are going to come out of that because that essentially is going to shape the future isn't it really absolutely Mm. absolutely and as you're talking there I'm thinking about mistakes you know when we make mistakes if we're on our own in our own Mm. home are we more or less likely to own up to them And how do you create psychological safety Mm. and the ability to own up to that mistake Mm. if you're Mm. not in a room with people? Yeah, fascinating topic. I think the whole thing, again, psychological safety, you could write a whole paper on that alone. And I think that was one of the most important things, which relates to what we're talking about, empathy. I think there's a really, really close synergy between the all-encompassing empathy and communication, but how that ties in with the whole psychological safety, they're almost like intertwined. Absolutely. And so with people that you spoke with and did the research with, Mm -hmm. did they change as individuals? Did they see their roles differently? Because you talked about empathy being the thing Mm -hmm. coming out over Mm -hmm. and over again. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, was it mainly men or women that you spoke with and was empathy something they were aware of or used? The cross-section it was fairly mixed. I would say across the board, people had to force empathy because by nature, even though obviously everybody is human, they're caring people, I think empathy is one of these things where, for example, you ask somebody to define empathy, it's really difficult to define because it's just one of those words, isn't it? So for them to kind of be in a position where they're looking after really vulnerable people and it's almost like a position of trust and responsibility is that yeah they had to change their behavior a lot of them had to almost force themselves to change management style because the whole command and control thing didn't really work and the uh, what's the word laissez 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 faire laissez faire for example yeah you know again managers would probably get away with that during a normal world but obviously in the pandemic it was really difficult to get away with that sort of management and will they revert to type will they go back to who they were before or will they change and now be who they are now (laughs) if that makes sense yeah I think so because of the learning experience Susan it's really difficult to go back to who you are because I think We've all changed as human beings and I think we've all evolved, hopefully for the better. The whole pandemic, it brought the worst and the best out of people. You know, we saw people fighting over toilet roll and bread in the supermarkets, the whole ugly face of the pandemic. But then we saw the amazing side in terms of people helping each other, you know, going and knocking on doors of old vulnerable people, doing the shopping, volunteering, doing everything that they could to do their bit so yeah I would like to think that for most of us it brought out the best in us but like with everything certain situations will bring the best and the worst out of people absolutely and it was also a very um, uncertain time and it's back to what we talked about at the beginning as well fears and insecurities and they're Mm -hmm. often what bring out the worst in us anyway because we're just trying to survive it's survival mode correct exactly Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah 
Anyway, Julian, that has been, the, first of all, the time disappeared. <laughs> oh my God, are we there already? <laughs> <laughs> We're coming to the, like, to the end of yeah. our conversation, I think. But yeah. is there anything else that you would like to highlight from the research that you think the listeners might find interesting? Yeah, I would say that what encompasses everything, and then this is something, again, which Simon Sinek said about management and leadership. Management and leadership is not about looking after the numbers. Leadership is about looking after the people who are responsible for the numbers. And this is the one thing uh, which encompasses a lot of the research. Look after your people, and they will look after the numbers and everything else. And I think that's what encompasses the whole research in terms of the leadership is that caring attitude. That's lovely. Thank you. That's really, really lovely. And one of the things that one of my previous guests said, which stayed with me, is numbers don't make decisions. People do. People do. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. I think you can extend that in so many ways. You know, numbers mm. don't motivate. And, and it goes do. back to life beyond numbers. There we go. <laughs> what a great Absolutely. way to <laughs> absolutely no it's it's so true and it's so easy the default is measure manage measure manage yeah but actually a lot of these qualities Mm -hmm. that you're talking about Mm -hmm. if they're done better the happier people are the better the numbers will be definitely definitely 100% agree with that cool Julian, thank you so much for taking time to come and share the findings of your research with us and also a bit more about you and what drives you. Mm -hmm. And if anyone would like to connect with you, what's the best way of doing that? Yeah, please do. I'm on LinkedIn. So if you search Julian Roy, the company is Prosperity Pathway. So yeah, please do connect. And yeah, I'd be more than happy to help out anyone who's looking for any advice or any any sort of help at all. Always, always, always there. Brilliant. And an MBA, would you recommend it? I would indeed. It was uh, two years of blood, sweat and tears. Again, there was times where I was questioning my own ability because I'm not really from an academic background, even though I did my GCSEs, I did the BTEC. Again, I think it falls down to my wife seeing something in me and saying, yeah, you can do this actually. But uh, through that journey of doing that, I think the whole thing about academia is it's about sitting down, doing the research, knowing the models and applying those models in the real world. And the best thing about it is those models are continuously changing. So if you can take even the basic models, because I know one of the things that you spoke about was that the change model, what was it called? The The change curve. Yeah, the change curve. But again, the change curve is continuously adapting because society is moving. So having those models and applying it to the real world and adapting them accordingly, I think that was, yeah, the the fundamental thing for me because we're living in such a fast-paced environment, aren't we? And that's a nice point as well sometimes, Mm -hmm. isn't it? Is the way we act and behave... Mm -hmm. The models are based on that anyway, mm-hmm. but sometimes we don't realize that there is a framework or a model that almost backs up the way we behave. A hundred percent, Susan. And when you speak to a lot of people, they're probably doing that anyway, but then you can apply that model to them and say, oh, I, I didn't actually realize that that's a model or that's a theory or that's a strategy, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. And that gives you a bit more self-belief it does, in your job. Yeah, yeah it does. Yeah, it's it's a little bit like tools, isn't it? I mean, if a mechanic wants to fix a car, he's going to need the tools to do that. And in our job, even though our tools may not be tangible in terms of a hammer or, you know, whatever it may be, there are other tools that we can use, you know. 
Absolutely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I'm just imagining banging somebody over the head with a spreadsheet, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Julian, thank you so much for your time. It's been an oh, thank you, pleasure. Susan. I've really enjoyed it, and yeah, great stuff. I'm looking forward to obviously keep in touch. And yeah, yeah thanks yeah. a lot and for inviting. You never me. know, we might have you back again. I'd love to. <laughs> I know you would. I can see it. <laughs> thank you. Brilliant. All right, Susan. You take care then. Bye. Cheers. Take care. Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone you know would enjoy it too. I believe we are all entitled to enjoy our work and the future of work life will be changed by those who put people first and create more fulfilling work lives for themselves, their colleagues, their teams and organisations. If you have any suggestions for topics you'd like to have covered, guests you'd like to hear from or questions for me, please drop a line to susan at beyond-thenumbers.com. And finally, please consider leaving a review.